My name is Michael Whitehouse, the guy who knows a guy. I'm a global connector, networking concierge, and coach. For two decades, I believed that my ADHD was a disability. Only at the age of 41 would I come to realize that my ADHD was an incredible asset, and when I leaned into that, I achieved greater success than ever before. ADHD is the engine behind my own success as a networker and coach. Over the past few years, I've spoken with thousands of entrepreneurs and found that many of them have some kind of neurodiverse diagnosis, ADHD, autism, dyslexia, OCD, and more. Like me, for many of them, their neurodiversity is indeed the very source of their success. On this show, we will change the narrative on neurodiversity. I've heard enough about the challenges and how hard it can be. I want to hear about how awesome we are. It's time to start talking about how our neurodiversity can be an asset for ourselves, our communities, and our businesses. It's time to start talking about neurodiversity superpowers. Hello, and welcome once again to the Neurodiversity Superpowers podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse the guy who knows the guy. And today our guest is Frank King. Frank King is a suicide prevention speaker and trainer, was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. He's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks, although I believe it's seven now, uh, and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. Depression and suicide run his family, He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count. A motivational public speaker who uses life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide. And doing it by coming out, as it were, and standing in his truth and doing it with humor. He believes that where there is humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life. Nobody dies laughing. The right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. I love this. I'm so excited to have you on the show. You actually, when we, when we first came up the show, I was like, got to have Frank on here. He's going to be one of the one of the key people whose story I've already been sharing, and I'd love to have him share it on the show. So welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you, guy who knows a guy. All right. Uh, so so uh, you cleverly in the bio touched on a bit of our three questions. I always open with, you know, what makes you successful? Um, what is your form of neurodiversity? And then how does your neurodiversity lead to your success? Um but uh, let's start with, with how are you successful? How are you awesome, Frank? Well, and let me ask you this. Let me answer your question with a question. Do you mean how, uh, what a, what successes have I had, like the seven TEDx talks? Or the methods to uh, be successful? Like what am I doing marketing-wise? Or well, Let's start with the, the seven TEDx talks. The kind of thing that someone would listen and say, I want whatever he has. Yeah, that's right. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> No, you don't. I have chronic suicidal ideation. Chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I keynote, I tell the audience, when I say small, uh, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three mm-hmm. thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. So, yeah, it's um, but it's happened so many times, I don't take that thought Seriously, it's coping mechanism. It's what did my brain going, this is really stressful. Let's check out. Um, yeah. So the the I'm a I'm a comedian by trade. I started comedy in the fourth grade, told my first joke, kids laughed, teacher was hysterical. And I said to myself, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a stand-up comedian in fourth grade. Did the talent show in high school, nobody had ever done stand-up, and I won. 
And then I moved to San Diego with an insurance company, beginning of the end of my insurance career, because there was a comedy store there, open mic night. And on my first open mic night, April 1st, 1984, halfway through my set, I heard a voice inside my head go, you're home. Well, I decided at that moment I was going to do it professionally. I had no idea how. I thought about writing a keynote, Michael, called, What Could You Do If You Didn't Know No Better? <laughs> because I had no idea how hard it was to make a living doing stand-up. I said to my girlfriend, now my wife, 35 years, in December of 85, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian professionally. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figuring, Michael, she'd go, oh, hell no. She goes, yeah. So we gave up our jobs in our apartment, jumped in the car, and we were on the road together 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. A lot of nights. Seven years of change. And worked with, lived with, because back then they put you up in a comedy condo, three bedrooms a week. Uh, Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Rosie, Ellen, uh, Foxworthy. It was, a, it was an amazing time to be in stand-up comedy and these i mean amazing intelligent really funny most dysfunctional mostly dysfunctional people <laughs> yeah they're two kind of comedians michael diagnosed undiagnosed yes <laughs> um, yeah so the then i uh did a little radio and comedy boom busted and so in 95 i decided because my act was clean i'll be a speaker i'll do the comedy you know the comedy that Rubber Chicken Circuit, the conference, you know, corporate comedy. Yep. Did that for 10 years. Uh, made a ridiculous, I must make it, somebody said to me, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? Roughly $5,000 a day plus drive. So <laughs> I'm no math major, Michael, but that made a lot of sense to me. Yep. So for 10 years, I just toured the country doing 45 minutes of jokes for five grand. <laughs> A meeting planner said to me one time, we're paying you $5,000 for 45 minutes of jokes? No, you're not paying me for the jokes I tell. You're paying me for the jokes I don't tell. And and you're paying me so when I get done with my job, you still have a job. So then the crash, the last recession, 07, 08, 09, bookings dropped off 80%, practically overnight. Mm. My wife and I lost everything we had Worked for in 25 years of marriage in Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. You see, again, in my family, depression, suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mom found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mom and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And if you're that close to an act of suicide and you're already hardwired for it, there's a pretty mm -hmm. good chance sometime in your life you're going to seriously consider it. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert for the audience, I did not pull the trigger. Yeah, a friend of mine came up to me after a keynote one time. He goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> uh, can I tell you a secret, Michael? Yes. Yeah, I joined, just you me in the audience. You me, yes. I, just between us. Don't tell anybody. Uh, when I moved to San Diego and decided I was going to be a speaker, uh, corporate comic, I joined the NSA, National Speakers Association. Mm -hmm. And everybody there had a message, except for me. And, you know, they all want to make a living and a difference. My tagline, I was so militant about it, making a living, not a difference. But I was professionally jealous 
that they had something to say. Because I saw Zig and I saw Brian Tracy and I thought I could do that if I just had something to teach people. Well, after coming so close to dying, after looking at my I've got depression and the suicidality, took a look at my family, more nuts than a squirrel turd. I thought, if I get some suicide prevention training and a certification, I can keynote on that. Second hurdle, Michael, I've been a comedian for 25 years. That's how everybody thinks of me. How am I going to convince anybody that I could do this, do something serious? Aha! I'll do a TEDx talk. Ah. And I'll make it serious. Suicide, suicide prevention. TEDx talk. Oh, get this, Michael. And I tell my coaching clients this. Go to TED and look up your topic. See how other people have handled the topic. So I looked up suicide on the big TED. I'm thinking it'd be dozens of talks. Three. Out of the, out of the millions of talks, three on suicide. Then it hit me. <laughs> Duh. If you're really good at suicide, you're not going to be recording a TED Talk. <laughs> so, anyway. And what I discovered, Michael, was it was a good choice in, in, in a speaking lane. Because the um, even though one person dies by suicide every nine minutes in the U.S., every 40 seconds around the world, hardly anybody talks about it. Unless you bring it up, which is what they pay me to do, and almost everybody's got a story. So... Right time, right place, right message. And it's it's just, uh, and I did something that Jane Atkinson says, pick a lane. Because before January 1st, 2018, I had a networking speech and a cardiac comedy speech because I had heart issues. I had a motivational speech. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to be a suicide prevention speaker. I mean, I'll do the other stuff if you'd like me to but I'm not going to market it. Mm -hmm. She says, pick a lane. Uh, NSA says the riches are in the niches. And then I niche my clients. I picked six of the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide because I believe the, the, the money to be made speaking is for associations. Because mm -hmm. they have to have a meeting. They, people come and pay to come. They got money for speakers. And so I picked six. So not only did I niche my speaking, I niche my ideal clients. Mm. And it's just, it's taken off from there. However, you know, being funny about depression and thoughts of suicide, every now and then somebody says to me, you joke about? I go, no. First of all, I don't joke. I tell funny stories, personal stories. Second of all, comedians, you can make fun of any group to which you belong. Since I'm double qualified, I can make jokes about depression, mental illness, thoughts of suicide, whatever. I have license because that's because I live with that every day. Mm -hmm. And and to segue to the next question, and I believe that my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my creativity, imagination, and comedic ability. Mm -hmm. Same brain, same wiring. I've said it, I've said it many times. I can teach you to write stand-up, I can teach you to, to perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process the incoming information the way my brain does. <laughs> I said in a TEDx called Mental Benefits, the Evolutionary Advantages of Mental Illness. I said, look, to the audience, I said, look, I do not believe I am broken. I believe I was made this way. I believe that, that the source of my superpowers is, you know, like, like, a, like a lot of 
comic book hero characters. There, there's something, you know, there's a flip side. Mm-hmm. The, Hulk, the Hulk gets the Hulk doesn't come out unless he gets really angry. You know, I mean, he's got this different problem. Uh, you know, <laughs> a little trouble with impulse control. Uh, no, I really do firmly believe. I mean, I just, I thought, Michael, that everybody processed the world the way I did. That when I was in a grocery store, let's say, in the checkout line, and something happens and I fire off a punchline, I figured I was just beating everybody else to it. So I thought, I'll test this. So I'm in the, in the grocery store, in the express line. Do you ever do this? It's kind of a, a guilty pleasure. Uh, look, see what the people in front of me and back of me are buying. Just to, you know, and I'm yeah, looking at yeah. him and he's got a bag of frozen shrimp and a quart of motor oil. Well, it was right about the time the BP oil spill had started a couple <laughs> days ago. Yeah. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to give everybody else time. So I counted three, two, one. Nobody said anything. I go, hey, man, frozen shrimp. And motor oil. Are you serving those Louisiana style? <laughs> the cashier's been over double. She goes, you should be a comedian. I go, yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> That's when I realized my neurodiversity. My, I process. I'm on a Delta flight. And it's, it's the day after the um, it's the day after the FAA said you could take your iPhone and you cut it on and use it on takeoff or landing if it's in the airplane mode. The problem with the flight attendant is she's got to tell everybody this. And it's not written down anywhere. It's not something she's you know doing over and over and over. She can do her you know the regular pre-flight safety stuff in her sleep. I'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> she gets through the you know uh, it was Delta, very southern flight attendant, as they, a lot of those folks are because they live around the Atlanta area. Um, she talked about seat cushions, floor path lighting, <laughs> oxygen masks, and she gets to the point where she's got to tell us about the iPhone and iPad, and she freezes. You can almost hear her thinking. And then she gets inspired. And I'm on the edge of my seat because I'm sensing in this, in a moment of tension like that, who knows what's going to happen. So she goes, ladies and gentlemen, due to a new FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. <laughs> I'm been over double. Nobody else in the plane's laughing. My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? I go, let's review. Before I can review, she comes back on. If you have large equipment, well, you're going to have to shove that under the seat in front of you. So I'm down (laughs) on my knees. That right there is my superpower. I'm telling you. It's the way my brain processes. Michael, hecklers. A lot of comedians are terrified. Mm -hmm. Uh, For good reason. Yep. But I'm in a club in Raleigh, North Carolina, my old home, Charlie Goodnight. And there's a bunch of people down front, and they're really noisy, but they're drinking Dom Perignon. So the club didn't want to throw them out because they're just they're spending buckets of money. But finally, mm-hmm. it's become too disruptive. So they, they asked them to leave. And so I turned my attention away from the door so that the audience won't be focusing on them as they march out. Well, the last person in line is a woman. And all of a sudden, she stops and starts turning back toward me because – must have heard something sound like her name because drunks her voice activated. So she turns back to me and she screams at the top of her lungs, F you. And without a, without a moment's delay, I said, not even for practice. Standing ovation. <laughs> and the audience, so, several people came up. How'd you think that up? Look, do you really want to know? 
They go, yeah, I didn't think it. When you heard it, I heard it. I, I had no idea that was coming. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where it came from. I, I, it, it's just a gift. Uh, that, Michael, and comedians are paid to pay attention. Mm-hmm. During their last, during the recession, the previous one, I decided I wanted to be a police officer because good pay, good benefits, steady job, and it was on my bucket list. And so I tried out with 12 different departments in the state of Washington. And one of the oral boards that I did where they interview with several people, they said, well, what's the connection between cops and comedy? I said, well, we're both paid observers. We, we take notice of things that other people see or hear, but they just walk by. They don't, you know, some people think it's, um, what's the word? Um, uh, it's hypervigilance. No, it's situational awareness. Mm. I'm all I, I'm I, just something about my brain. Somebody, this probably was a shut off knob, <laughs> but somewhat got broken off. And so, I, you know, it just keeps the stuff just goes in and gets processed and comes out. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a thing in mentalism called a cold read. I didn't know about that till years after I was doing. It. I just had this hobby of guessing where people are from. And it's what you do is you look at their face, listen to their voice, how they're dressed, and just go with your intuition. And I would say 80% of the time I'm spot on. 20% of the time, completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, but but it's and a friend of mine who's a mentalist goes, Frank, that's that is a that's mentalism. It's a trick. It's a cold read. You can you can develop the talent as you obviously have. So I'm coming back across the Canadian border. I'm talking to the U.S. Border Patrol guy. And his name says Thomas, name tag. He's got a Southern dialect. And so I said to him, Mr. Thomas, you're from Georgia. And he freezes. And he goes, I am. But how do you know that? I said, you're asking the wrong question. What's the right question? Why the Border Patrol doesn't have somebody like me at every border crossing watching and listening to people coming across the border <laughs> because, you know, I pick up on those cues that, that other people, again, they see it or hear it, but they don't, they don't make note process it. Yeah. I'm constantly, you know, I'm walking behind a guy who goes, Oh, it looks like Garth arthritis needs a, it's his right leg. He needs a, a knee, <laughs> a new knee, hmm. just things like that. And I just do that all the time. I guess about people's occupation and you know why they're sad. You ever do this, Michael? You're walking towards somebody and they smile at you, but it doesn't reach their eyes. I tried to convince a neurotypical person <laughs> that, that, that that was a thing. I go, no, he smiled, but it never, it never reached his eyes. And he goes, what do you mean it never reached his eyes? You, you can't see that. Mm. <laughs> That's uh yeah. So anyway, it's um, I I know that's definitely a thing because apparently in my twenties, I smiled with the bottom half of my face. Oh, and, and so a lot of people they they kind of responded negatively to me, and I never understand. And someone said, "You only you don't smile with your eyes." And I'm like, "What do you mean?" They're like, look in the mirror. You know? And I I kind of I smiled like, but and so now so I kind of made a point of like smiling fully, not just smiling performatively, and, uh, and people now respond much better. Uh, my, my wife now jokes, you could tell when I was smiling when I had a mask on because my eyes would disappear. Yes. And when my mask on, wherever I was, I would, I would, I would a lot of people complain because you, know, you couldn't see their face, the bottom half of the face. But I, I have the ability to smile with my eyes. You know, that uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, 
So let's back up a bit, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, married to my first wife, wonderful woman, miserable. <laughs> um, selling insurance, great business, miserable. And in, uh, let's see, it was 1984, sometime in, the, in January, 84. I'm driving down Highway 163 in San Diego about five in the afternoon. It's kind of my low, low point of my day. And the thought crossed my mind. It was my first suicidal thought, or you could just kill yourself. And I realized if I didn't divorce my wife, well, I said, if I didn't change something, sooner rather than later, I was going to kill myself. My second thought was very empowering. Well, what the hell? I could divorce my wife, <laughs> quit my job, try comedy. If it works, and I think it will. Great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. Mm-hmm. So my fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Mm-hmm. Now, I said to the audience, look, I'm not suggesting anybody else, you know, adopt suicide as a as a success strategy it's just my it's just the way i think and yep. i believe michael um kate spade and anthony bourdain died within a month of each other by suicide and i suspect both of those folks had a similar came to a similar juncture kate was the editor of some like the accessories division of some big fashion magazine i mean a, a big job mm-hmm. and but i i i can hear in my mind thinking her, hear her in my mind thinking i'm not supposed to be reviewing other people's fashions i'm supposed to be creating fashions and perhaps she was depressed she did have um mental illness depression thoughts of suicide untreated so she maybe and then anthony bourdain he went to france when he was eight years old and he fell in love with food all through high school, he worked in restaurants. And then he went to Vassar, I think, and majored in something. But he still worked at restaurants. And I'm guessing he probably pulled up short one day and thought, you know, it's great college, great major. But it, it's not, that's not where I belong. I belong in culinary. And maybe he had the same thought. Look, if I don't jump to the culinary institute, I'm going to kill myself. If it works great, if it doesn't help. <laughs> you know, I can always kill myself. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's several studies I read that one third of entrepreneurs are depressed and suicidal. Now, clinicians, one third of entrepreneurs, depressed and suicidal. Clinicians believe it's long hours, a uh, little sleep, and, and unmet expectations. And I imagine a lot of that is what's happening. But I'll bet you also there are entrepreneurs who are not depressed and suicidal. They are, in fact, um, uh, let's see, they're. They're not, uh, they're not depressed suicidal because they're entrepreneurs. They are entrepreneurs because they were depressed and suicidal. Mm-hmm. Figured, what the hell? Yep. You know? So it's, uh, so suicide is the, I, I truly, I've never met anybody who's high functioning, mentally ill, who doesn't have some extraordinary ability in some area. Mm. That's why I did the mental benefits. Um, TEDx for kids. I start off by saying, what if those of us living with a mental illness, not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if mental illness is, as Malcolm Gladwell says, of such thing in his book, such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage? You would never wish it on anyone. However, and what if we can convince a child? Yes, you have mental illness, but here's what they have yet to tell you. 
yep. you probably have some mental ableness your peers cannot touch. So my suggestion, and I always try to make action items at the end. So if you're you're living with somebody who has an issue, a mental challenge, you know, figure out what their superpower is and wrap your arms around it and embrace mm-hmm. it and energize it and encourage it. Treat the mental illness. I said, what do you say? We make the individual education plan truly individual. Guy I worked with on boats was a musician and he was a teacher at a high school in the music department. I think it was, um, you know, the orchestra. He said, Frank, my best student, ADD, ADHD. The problem was, is 50 minutes sitting in a chair doing one thing. He said, first 10 minutes, they got better. Next 40 minutes, they're just using all their energy to sit still. So he bought an egg timer on a whim, on an intuition. And he said it for 10 minutes. He said, look, we're going to practice our scales for 10 minutes. And when the egg timer goes off, we're going to practice our breathing. And when the egg timer goes off, we're going to practice those two pieces you're doing at the concert this weekend. And then we're going to start all over again. And they just, the the performance level. So it's not always the curriculum like STEM. Sometimes it's a teaching method. Mm. You know, teach to the to the to their abilities, you know, in a way that they can absorb it. Again, I don't think, I don't think um, I'm broken. <laughs> I, I, I truly do believe. I mean, people, I'll, I'll write taglines for folks and, you know, that kind of thing. For speakers, a lot of times. A friend of mine, Anthony Met, one of my TEDx coaching clients. He teaches soft skills, communication, um, emotional intelligence, individuation. He said, Frank, I need, I need a tagline. Are you ready for bed? Because everybody knows that I go to bed with a, with a question, and I usually wake up with the answer. <laughs> and I've encouraged it. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, I lie in bed some mornings, Michael, for an hour in the dark, in the quiet, and just let my mind. We have lost the ability to do nothing, to, to be alone with our thoughts, without earbuds or whatever. So I'm lying. I wake up at three in the morning. Anthony met me teaching these soft skills. I wake up, and I thought I got it, and I texted it. Anthony Metton, soft skills, concrete results. Okay, I texted him. I texted him right back. Okay, first, you woke me. And second, did you think of this in your sleep? <laughs> Pretty much. Again, I, I, I think, you know, not everybody's mind works that way. Yep. I, you know, and so I really do. I truly believe. And if we can convince a child of that and their peers of that, we could reduce bullying and stigma and mm-hmm. youth suicide. The only demographic suicide rates went up in, Michael, during the pandemic, teenagers and college students. Everybody else came down to point now. I just, yeah, it's just, it's three college students a day, every day die by suicide. It's an epidemic. Mm. So again, if we can, if we can convince kids that they're not, you know, that they're not broken, they were made that way. Yep. And we need to enhance and embrace and energize whatever it is that they do really. Well, the, um, 30, Fortune 500 companies are now hiring people on this, the autism spectrum simply for their singular ability and paying them handsomely. These, some of these people have been living in their parents' basement for who knows how long. They can now live independently because they've got a great income. Yep. So, yeah, it's, I and I think in a workplace, and I've got a friend who speaks on this, neurodiversity in the workplace makes it a better workplace. Mm-hmm. 
Now, there are some challenges. If you're on the spectrum and you have trouble picking up social cues, we need to make sure that everybody is aware that he's not just, uh, you know, an a-hole. He just doesn't ask a friend of mine who has uh, Asperger's, well, what social cues are you missing? She goes, Frank, if I knew, I would. <laughs> yep. I wouldn't miss them. Uh, yeah, of course. It was a stupid question. I'm sorry. But yep. yeah, so I don't know if that answered your question in a very long form. Absolutely. No, that, that was great. I, I think um, that there's a couple of uh, really great points you made. There are probably many great points about ADHD. I missed half of them. But so, but some, some really good points I remember. Um, one of them is 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 uh, the the idea of of you know you kind of saying I could always kill myself because you always could so you might as well not do it now you know I do it today but you could just, it's the one thing you could put off till tomorrow like you might as well try quitting yeah. your job first before you do it because you can't kill yourself first and then quit your job so you <laughs> might as well quit your job first see what happens um, my my mother actually wrote a short story which um, I've, I've asked her to find for me it was called the bridge will always be there. And the premise was basically this woman had a terrible, terrible experience. I, I think there was there was a divorce and and the, the guy was abused. It's a terrible situation. And she came to a bridge and thought about jumping off it. And she's like, you know what? This, they're not taking they're not tearing down the bridge. Let me give it a day. If I still feel this way tomorrow, I'll come back to the bridge. The bridge will always be here. Um, and and then of course she went on and she met, you know, she met the love of her life and and good things happened. And um, she of course never killed herself. But but I think that's that's why you have the teenagers and, and college kids who, to them, every you know, the first breakup is is they'll never love again. Um, yeah. the, the college kid who they they fail the test. Oh my god, I'm gonna fail the test now. I'm gonna fail the class now. I can't get a job. I'm gonna live under a bridge. Well, you might as well live under the bridge first. But they don't have that perspective. There's no one telling them. Well, why don't you try something first before you kill yourself? You try something else. Try dropping out of school first. Try getting a yeah. you know, getting a job. Try becoming a stand-up comic and traveling the country for seven years. Yeah. Well, and part of the problem is for younger people, I've been through these cycles so many times. I know my depression cycle is 72 hours. I know when it start, I start cycling down, I know 72 hours later, I'll cycle back up. And it's not usually situational. It's just uh, like a wheel of the flat spot. Mm -hmm. But I've been through it so many times. I, I used to say I fight depression, but that's not accurate. Fight implies I could win, <laughs> not happen. I can lose and kill myself, or I can have a tie like North and South Korea, kind of an uneasy truce. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what I do is I just, there's a martial art called Aikido. I've taken mm, some classes. Yep. And the idea is rather than going at your opponent and meeting energy with energy, you blend with your opponent's energy. And so that's what I try to do with the depression. I try to blend rather than fight it, because that takes a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. I try to blend with it. Surfing the crazy, a buddy of mine calls it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I obviously don't have it at, at that same level, but I'll, I definitely have times. Uh, I mean, my, my mother's diagnosed with chronic depression. Um, it is possible that, that I got a bit of that. And there, there will be times when when I'll be down and and especially an entrepreneur, you know, I can set my own rhythms and whatnot. But there are times I'm like, you know, today is not going to be a productive day. Uh, I'm yeah. going to do it. it. And some days like I'm not even going to try. Today's a watch TV day. Like my to do list is out the window. My to do list is now watching Airwolf. Um, or you know, watching <laughs> wow, um, uh, some TV because you know, I again, I'm not going to fight it, I'm going to go into the pit, let them replace the axle, like you know, fix what needs to get fixed, and then get back to it tomorrow. Because if you fight it, you wear yourself out, and your 72 yes. hour cycle can become a 72 day cycle because every day you're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing instead of just saying, you know, what? I'm 
I'm going to be down for the next 48 hours. That's, that's just going to, I'm going to cancel my meetings. I'm going to, um, Forte's an extrovert meetings tend to bump me back up, but you know, recognizing I'm not going to get these things done. This is just not going to happen. And if it doesn't, as I always tell my wife, we don't work in an ER. So if we miss a day, nobody dies. <laughs> yes. And, and the chronic suicide ideation actually helps keep me alive, ironically, because suicide, I believe firmly, is not about wanting to kill yourself for most people. Mm-hmm. It's about ending the pain. Mm. And because I've already made the decision I could kill myself at any moment, I've crossed that barrier, I, I'm in control. So yeah. I can stand a, a whole lot more pain knowing the bridge will always be there. Yeah. To quote your mom. Yep. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because when the things you were talking about, um, they, they <clears throat> indicate mental clarity. Like being able to just have an instant response to something is because there's not a lot of noise in your brain. Your brain's clear. I, I started playing Fortnite recently, the first-person shooter game. Yeah. And I found the clearer my head is, the better I am. If, if I got things going on, if I'm distracted, if my daughter's walking around, I'm terrible at it. I, I can't hit the broad side of a barn. And uh, because, you know, my reaction time is slower. Something will happen. By the time I react, I've lost on the next match. But yes. better I, the more I can clear my head, the more I can just be straight stimulus to reaction, the better I'm going to do. And the things you're talking about, being able to deal with with hecklers, coming up with ideas, coming up with taglines, all those things are signs of you don't have, you know, your head is clear and you're you're open to to the universe. You're open to your, right. your inner wisdom, whatever it is. And it sounds like if you've accepted, I don't need to worry about this because eh, I could just kill myself. Yeah. Then, then it, that if that frees you. Whereas if you're like, what about this? What if I lose? What if I lose the house? What if we don't get the client? What if we don't? Well, you lose the creativity because your your head's all. You got your subconscious there being all like, what about this? 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 I had a fiance like that once. Couldn't. I, I was actually selling insurance at the time, and she texted me during the day. We, we got the electric bill. How are we going to pay it? Well, not with the sales I'm making today, apparently, because <laughs> that ain't happening anymore. Uh, yeah, I'd be totally out of the zone. Everyone I met was like, because because it, it'd just be always getting me in my head. But the more you can clear that out, the more the more in touch you can be, and the more powerful you can be. Yeah, I think in compartmentalization, um, my wife is a warrior by nature. Mm-hmm. So I go, I'm I'm worried about so and so, and I go, well, you know, you have to worry about something. <laughs> you know, implying you don't have to. I don't. Um, that you know, that, that's as good as any. Uh, you know, that's, if you really need to worry about that, go right ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but it's yeah. You know, I, I tell you something else. This is an odd one. It's a physical. It's an eye. It's an eye hand thing, and I think it it has to do with that mental clarity. Is uh, I was at a Starbucks with a friend of mine, and there was something near the edge of the table, and I don't know the table shifted or the you know something happened, and it it, it fell, but but it never made the floor because somehow I was picking up that it was on its way. <laughs> and my hand just, my hands all almost always, you know, where it's headed. It's um, a friend of mine played football. He was a linebacker college. So Frank, I wasn't the fastest guy on the field. My trick was I could watch and I could tell you very quickly where the ball was going and all I had to do, I didn't have to beat the the you know the high speed guy. I just had to get to, to you know where the ball was headed before before it got to him. Mm. So rather than chasing him, he would run 
you know, per, uh, you know, uh, you know, straight to the side because he saw what he was watching the quarterback's eyes. He knew exactly where the ball was going. Mm. And so I think that, and I've had friends of mine go, how did you catch that? I didn't even see it falling. <laughs> I, I really have no idea. Mm. It's just the way my brain is wired. I, I'm anticipating, you know, you see it start to tilt and something in my head goes, get your hand down there. And I'd say 90% of the time I catch it. Most times, you know, hit my, if I don't catch it, it hits my hand and bounces off. Not yeah. my fault. Not my fault. But I, again, I think that's that, that situational awareness, you know, that, yep. that, that Michael Jordan called it um, a soft focus. They said he could see the entire basketball court, you know, uh, whereas most people are focused, you know, the guys coming down the court with the ball. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it, Michael. So, so we were coming towards the the end of our time, but you, you did have a note you wanted to you want to talk about stand up comedy on cruise ships. I, I said that you did. I said, "What would you like to cover?" And you said, "I do stand up comedy on cruise boats." Yes. Well, we probably shouldn't cover that, Michael, because I got I got fired off everyone that's based in the U.S. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, and I'm now back on one that that's based in Europe, and the guy who's the talent coordinator is a friend of mine. And I said when he called me about the crew, you don't go back to cruising. I said, Gene, do you know who you called? <laughs> he said, yes, I called you. I know you. Here's the good news, Frank. That cruise line doesn't. <laughs> so uh, I am, it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a bad gig, Michael. Mm-hmm. I do two 30, 35 minute shows in seven days. I'm just a passenger otherwise. Wow. That is pretty good. Yeah. It's a luxury cruise ship. I got a lot of work done. You know, like I got, I'm what they call a cabin rat. I lock myself in my cabin, they get good, decent internet, and get a lot of work done during that seven day. And then the gym steps away, and the meals, you know, they got protein out the wazoo, so I can eat my keto, and it's, you know, protein's expensive, you know, animal, uh, mm-hmm. it's expensive. But on the ship, hey, it's good. <laughs> Let me do a quick um, self-care plan. Yes. That, that was my keynote. It's called Social Distancing and Staying Sane, Don't Worry So Much About Your Mentally Ill Friends. Because everybody I knew who was mentally ill and high-functioning had a self-care plan. And because we wake up in an in a, in a, in a uncertain world every day, whether this is a pandemic or not. So you have, I believe, have to have systems in place. Mm-hmm. Very simple. I do um, diet. I do the keto diet and I intermittently fast. Exercise. Try to exercise every day. Um, good night's sleep. It really worries me, Michael, that people brag about how little sleep they can operate yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I think it should be the reverse, but a good night's sleep is restorative meditation twice a day. Usually after a meal, it's a guided meditation on a MP3 takes me down, brings me back up and uh, medication. I take a little bit of medication and that's it. And that's day in, day out. And I practice something called gamification. Mm. If I can't get out of bed in the morning, I make an actual physical to-do list. And the game is, the moment I scratch off, let's say I have a half dozen items. The moment I scratch off number six, I don't care if it's broad daylight and three in the afternoon. I can do what I've been wanting to do all day long, and that is get back in the bed, pull the covers over my head, and binge watch you know whatever's happening on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's a, you win. It's a gamification. It's a way to get moving forward. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I just want to share that with the, you know, it's a, as, as, as advice, because I imagine people yeah. who are neurodiverse who are listening and struggle with those things. I love that. And I think the key thing to that too, is the, you know, that, that particular strategy may work, may not, but it's, it's doing it without judgment. It's instead of saying, Oh, I shouldn't go to bed. The sun's still up. Did you get, you got your things done? Like you can go to bed, whatever. Yeah. That's yeah a game. People stay up till the sun's long down and they still didn't get anything done today. And here's why I love live. One of the reasons I love live in Oregon. The days in the middle of January, the sun comes up at eight in the morning, goes down at four. And in my mind, Michael, if it's dark, it can be bedtime. <laughs> I love it. Um, and and finally, uh, you you coach TED Talks. Let's touch yes. on that briefly before I send you on your way. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you do for people and who you do it for. Most of them are speakers. Either they want to speak or they want to you know up uh, up level their speaking career. Uh, we, uh, most of the companies that do that, you meet once one-on-one and then group zooms after that. I meet with my clients once a week for an hour and we fill out a couple of applications each week. I find the links because Ted makes it hard to find them. Mm-hmm. And then let's say they get the audition. I prep them for the audition because there are several questions they always ask. And then if they get it, then we create together the seven to 18 minute talk. And, and at some point in my TEDx coaching career, I realized most of these people are speakers because the other TEDx coaching companies, when you get to TEDx, they're done. Mine is landing and leveraging the TEDx. So what do you want to do with it? Oh, you want to speak. Okay. Would well, you have a speaker website and one pager and, you know, and, and a sizzle reel. So I just, I get them so they can be turnkey for a meeting planner to be booked. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and then help them with resources of, you know, marketing resources that have worked for me that, you know, I relatively inexpensive. I've tried them out. I'm using them. I don't have an affiliate link or anything. I just said, look, this is why, this is where I'm going for my marketing and why. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, so, so yeah, so I take them beyond just getting the talk or, or maybe I want to sell more books or whatever it is, but where, wherever they want. And my deal is, Michael, it's, I call it till death do us part. We work on getting you a TEDx and you're speaking to career where you want it until we do or we both die trying. So that seems to appeal to people. Although two of my clients, Michael, said, Frank, I don't die trying. No, I want a separate clause in that contract that says that you won't kill yourself before I get to TEDx. Yeah, only two people out of all. Thinking ahead. Those ones who know you. Yeah, because I know you're serious now, man. And you said, you know, till that. No, I need a separate deal. Yep. And so how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in in uh, learning about that or getting you on stage or whatever else they might need? It's TheMentalHealthComedian.com. TheMentalHealthComedian.com. And if you go there, Michael, uh, put in an email address. I'm I'm a co-author of four books on men's mental health. And I, I'm working through the process of narrating them for Audible. Right. And I've done the first one. So it's free. The unabridged audiobook for an email address. You can have it for free if you go to thementalhealthcomedian.com. Such a deal. Thementalhealthcomedian.com. Of course, that'll be in the show notes as well if people want to find that. Um, whether they're watching on the in the Facebook group, watching, or they're listening on the podcast, it's down below. So, Frank, thank you so much. Uh, do put my phone number in the show notes, Michael. Okay. Uh, when I keynote, I say to the audience, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day, 
call a crazy person. Here's my cell. <laughs> and they do every now and then once a week or so, somebody will call. I had, I had a coffee yesterday with a woman who's worried about her son and she just wanted me to help decode what's going on. He showed me a text exchange and said, is this dangerous? And I said, yes, it is. So I gave her some suggestions on how to deal with that. Mm. Very good. Yes. That, that number will be in the, in the show notes as well. Well, thank you very much. Been great to, as ever, I've been excited to have you on the show. Cause I know you, you, you were one of the people I talked to. It was like, wow, that's a, that's a serious neurodiverse superpower. That might be a thing. And then I started looking more places and seeing them in other people before I finally, and I know it took about four months, realized I had them too. So, um, so you would, so your story was helpful on my journey as well. So oh, great. thank you for that. Um, yeah, the, the, the show is really the, the culmination of, of, I met, you know, Dan Mangana, learned hers, his story. I learned your story, a few others. And I'm like, but I'm still disabled with ADHD. And finally, I looked close, like, wait a minute. I've just been doing it wrong. It's like, you know, a screwdriver is not disabled because it can't bang a nail into the table. It just, you're using it wrong. So yes. it, it only took me 42 years to figure that out. And uh, that's the purpose of this show is to help other people do it, you know, faster by 37 or 36. Well, and you could change and or save lives with the show, Michael, because, you know, I mean, when I speak sometimes and talk about chronic suicidal ideation, there are people in the audience who doesn't know that, don't know that's a thing, and they've got it. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, when they find out it's a thing and they're not alone, I've had people weep. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and and really, generally, whatever it is you've got, whatever's weird about you, what the internet has taught us, there's at least one other person who's got it. Yeah, that's. Uh... And probably an entire group. Yes, an entire. And after a keynote, oftentimes somebody will come up to me because he's usually at least one person that got it. Yeah. I've had this happen several times. Walk up and go, I'm your one. My one what? I'm the one who has chronic suicidal ideation and I did not know it had a name. <laughs> Love it. Well, so it's been great to have you on the show. And for those of you who are listening, it's great to have you listening. If you liked this, be sure to share it. If you found Frank's information valuable, be sure to go to thementalhealthcomedian.com and his numbers down there as well. Can I close it? Uh, let me close it like the comedians do. Uh, oh, close, you're, yes, you're, you're better on stage than I am. Take it away. Yeah. You're the yeah, Please rate, please uh, subscribe, rate, and review. It really does help out. Uh, please tell your friends. Um, uh, if you did not like the podcast, we hope you have no friends. I love it. All right. Well, thank you very much for helping me close the show, too. This has been awesome. So good to have you on, as always. My pleasure. This has been the Neurodiversity Superpowers Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whitehouse. Sign up to get every episode at neurodiversitysuperpowers.me. Join our Facebook group on facebook.com slash groups slash neurodiversity superpowers. Thank you so much for joining us, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I'm launching a course called Successful ADHD Entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time, and I've had ADHD for a little bit longer than that. Over that time, I've learned quite a few things that make me quite effective. People even call me organized. After many people ask me to, I have created a course to share what I've learned with you. Get details at neurodiversity.me course. The first run is limited to only 20 students, and the first class is April 20th, so don't put this one off neurodiversity.me slash course.